0: Hey friends, M. Faring here. I am so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay friends, let's begin. welcome back to the open our bibles together podcast my friends as a way of refreshing our memories about where we have been with job and his friends so far let's start out our time today with this personality profile about Eliphaz, bildad and zophar from the nlt life application study bible it reads few people in history have experienced the kind of tragedy that crushed job he lost everything his children were killed his possessions and wealth were taken His wife turned her back on him, and his health was broken, all in a matter of days. Upon learning of Job's difficulties, some of his friends came to help. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were shocked when they found Job. They wept for him. They tore their clothes and put dust on their heads in sorrow. They sat in silence with Job for seven days. Why did his friends remain silent for so long? One ancient Jewish tradition teaches that people who come to comfort someone in mourning should not speak until the mourner speaks. That is a wise tradition, for often the best response to another person's suffering is to say nothing. If Job's losses were his first test and his painful boils his second, then his friends provided a third and perhaps most frustrating test. When Job finally vented his grief, each of his friends took turns attempting to explain Job's agony. They heard Job's questions as arrogant claims of not deserving such suffering, rather than expressions of deep grief and misunderstanding. They offered answers that only served to make Job's pain go deeper. Eliphaz appealed to personal experience, pointed to universal wisdom, and Zophar declared what he felt was common sense. They all agreed that Job's problems were his own doing and that questioning God simply made matters worse. The harder Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar tried to explain Job's suffering, the less they helped. Consolation turned into condemnation as a grief-stricken Job rejected their reasoning and demanded a hearing with God. When God finally did speak, he never answered Job's questions. He simply challenged Job to trust, even beyond understanding. Friendship and grief require patience. Friends in need don't have to have all their questions answered as much as they need to have someone listen. Some questions are so deep that their best response is silence. Make it a point to be with those in pain, but let your physical presence be your strongest statement of support. Pray for patience. When in doubt about a question, wait. Sit quietly and be the best friend you can be during difficult times. So with the first round of talks concluded, we will see each friend, in the same order, press their argument further. Again, we will also hear Job answer each argument throughout chapters 15 through 31. This time, Eliphaz was more rude, more intense, and more threatening, but he said nothing new. He begins chapter 15 by saying that Job's words were empty and useless Then he restated his opinion that Job must be a great sinner. According to Eliphaz, the experience and wisdom of their ancestors were more valuable than Job's individual thoughts. Eliphaz assumed that his words were as true as God's. It's easy to spot his arrogance. Oh, Eliphaz. With that said, let's just listen in to hear from Eliphaz himself as Job chapter 15 from the message translation of the Bible reads. Eliphaz spoke a second time. If you were truly wise, would you sound so much like a windbag belching hot air? Would you talk nonsense in the middle of a serious argument, babbling baloney? Look at you. You trivialize religion, turn spiritual conversation into empty gossip. It's your sin that taught you to talk this way. You choose an education in fraud. Your words have exposed your guilt. It's nothing I've said. You've incriminated yourself. Do you think you're the first person to have to deal with these things? Have you been around as long as the hills? Were you listening in when God planned all this? Do you think you're the only one who knows anything? What do you know that we don't know? What insights do you have that we've missed? Gray beards and white hair back us up. Old folks who've been around a lot longer than you. Are God's promises not enough for you? Spoken so gently and tenderly. Why do you let your emotions take over, lashing out and spitting fire, pitting your whole being against God by letting words like this come out of your mouth? Do you think it's possible for any mere mortal to be sinless in God's sight? For anyone born of a human mother to get it all together? Why, God can't even trust His holy angels. He sees the flaws in the very heavens themselves. So how much less we humans, smelly and foul, who lap up evil like water? I have a thing or two to tell you, so listen up. I'm letting you in on my views. It's what wise men and women have always taught holding nothing back from what they were taught by their parents back in the days when they had all this land to themselves. Those who live by their own rules, not gods, can expect nothing but trouble, and the longer they live, the worse it gets. Every little sound terrifies them. Just when they think they have made it, disaster strikes. They despair of things ever getting better. They're on the list of people for whom things always turn out for the worst." They wander here and there, never knowing where the next meal is coming from. Every day is doomsday. They live in constant terror, always with their backs up against the wall, because they insist on shaking their fists at God, defying God Almighty to His face, always and ever at odds with God, always on the defensive. Even if they're the picture of health, trim and fit and youthful, they'll end up living in a ghost town, sleeping in a hovel not fit for a dog, a ramshackle shack. They'll never get ahead, never amount to much of anything. And then death. Don't think they'll accept that. They'll end up shriveled weeds, brought down by a puff of God's breath. There's a lesson here. Whoever invests in lies gets lies for interest. Paid in full before the due date. Some investment. They'll be like fruit frost-killed before it ripens. Like buds sheared off before they bloom. The godless are fruitless, a barren crew. A life built on bribes goes up in smoke. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. Their lives are wombs for breeding deceit. Wowzers, Eliphaz. Dare we even ask how he really feels? Oh my. The Jesus Bible has this to say about what we see happening here in the beginnings of the second phase of the conversation between Job and his three friends. This chapter opened with Eliphaz disputing Job's claim of an innocence before God. Twisting Job's words, he rejected Job's desire for a rightful day in court by insisting that his own words testified against him. While his conclusions seemed reasonable from his own flawed point of view, Eliphaz lacked the proper spiritual vantage point to identify the true source of Job's suffering. The Jewish leaders expressed a similar lack of spiritual understanding when they attempted to use Jesus' own words to incriminate him. Searching for a credible reason to indict him of treason, they demanded Jesus publicly validate or deny his claim to be the Messiah. Refusing to be manipulated, Jesus instead laid claim to sovereignty over a more wide-ranging kingdom than they could comprehend. At this, the teachers of the law believed they had sufficient grounds to condemn Jesus of blasphemy. However, being more concerned about advancing their own agenda than discovering the truth, the accusing leaders missed this crucial spiritual reality. Jesus truly is God. While people may believe they are pursuing God, like Job's friends or the Jewish council, it is possible they are missing the most obvious truths. Though God loves everyone immensely, He often has priorities that are not easily understood. Sometimes the finite sufferings of God's people fall within a much larger divine plan. Did you hear that, my friends? Sometimes the finite sufferings of God's people fall within a much larger divine plan. Do you remember our conversation about how God uses the dust moments in our lives, as described in the excerpt I read from It's Not Supposed to Be This Way book in the last episode? Consider this continuation of where we left off in the next chapter, entitled, But How Do I Get Through the Next 86,400 Seconds? Lisa Turkhurst shares, Okay, so dust is what I have in front of me, and a glorious remaking is what's ahead of me. But how do we fix the pain today? Because I've got 86,400 seconds of today that I have to get through. So what's the plan to help me not hurt today? I looked my counsel in the eye and willed myself not to blink." I wanted a step-by-step plan to get me through this. I wanted a guarantee that if I followed the plan, then the pain would go away. And if he couldn't give me all that, then I wanted a pill. A pill to help me sleep through the next year so that I could just wake up on the other side of this with everything miraculously fixed. I always want miraculous fixes without pain. My counselor didn't give me a quick fix. I'm sure he wanted to. I'm sure he wanted to fix a lot about me, especially my desire for everything to be okay right now and my refusal to just embrace the process of healing. I knew God would eventually make everything okay. I knew God would, in fact, make something new and wonderful from my dust. I just didn't know how to function without freaking out in the midst of daily life. My counselor finally broke the news to me that there was simply no easy way around the heartbreaking circumstances in my life. I would have to walk through them, and it would be painful. I don't know what pain you are going through today, But I suspect whatever it is, it's got some roots of disappointment. You didn't think life would be like this. You didn't think circumstances would be like this. You didn't think you'd be like this. You didn't think they would be like this. You didn't think God would be like this. Depending on the level of pain, you'll use different words to describe the feelings. Words like disillusioned, devastated, let down, or driven to the brink of utter frustration. Whatever it is, the roots of all these feelings can be traced back to your disappointment. You are expressing that your experience of life isn't matching your expectations of how you thought life would be. Those feelings are painful, and that pain must be addressed. God helped me see this in a pretty dramatic way one summer. I woke up on what I thought would be an ordinary Monday in June, but nothing was normal. I felt as if knives were mercilessly carving their way through my insides. Waves of nausea left me convulsing and desperate for relief. I tried to step out of bed, but I collapsed. I screamed. My family rushed me to the emergency room where we all hoped I could find some relief and help. It would be five excruciatingly horrible and exhausting days before I'd find either. I never knew how impossible it could feel to live another hour, much less another day. I never knew how painful 60 seconds could be. I never desperately desired death before as my only option for relief. I had gone from feeling just fine traveling home from vacation on Sunday to lying drenched in tears and sweat in the critical care unit on Monday. This pain couldn't be brushed off or ignored. It consumed me. At first, my mind couldn't think rationally at all. It was just panicked, trying to figure out how to get an immediate relief from my pain. I was in the urgency of the moment, but as the panic started to give way to desperation, I cried out for God to help me. Take the pain away. Please, dear God, take this pain away. But he didn't. Not that moment, not the next, not even the next day. His silence stunned me. How could God do that? How could he say I'm his daughter whom he deeply loves, but let me lie there in excruciating pain? I have children, and if I could take away their pain without a doubt, I would. God could do that, but he was choosing not to. C.S. Lewis wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. I like that quote. It's certainly Facebook-worthy. But in the context of my hospital bed, when the darkness of pain seemed to block out any sliver of light, a rebellious doubt drummed inside my head. What do you see now? I saw pain. I saw myself desperately crying out to God. I saw no evidence that God was doing anything with my cries. I saw painful minutes turn into hours and then turn into days, I saw doctors scratching their heads. I saw tears in my mom's eyes. I saw fear in my family's eyes. I saw bewilderment in my friend's eyes. But I didn't see God doing anything about any of this. And isn't that what deeply troubles us about this whole relationship thing we're encouraged to have with God? Doesn't a relationship mean you'll show up when needed? Few things affect me more than being disappointed by those people who love me. But being disappointed by the fact that God doesn't seem to be showing up during times of my greatest need, that wrecks my soul. It's not that I expect God to fix everything about my situation, but I do expect him to do something. I kept picturing him standing beside my bed, seeing my anguish, watching my body writhing in pain, hearing my cries but making the choice to do nothing, and I couldn't reconcile that. It's the same thing that happens when I hear of a baby being stillborn, or a young mother dying of cancer, or a teenager committing suicide or someone suffering in a refugee camp, or people starving in a third-world country. Where are you, God? I mean, even humans with the slightest bit of compassion are compelled to do something to help another person in deep distress and pain. So how can a perfect God seemingly stay silent at times? We Christians rally behind these unexplainable horrors with Bible verses and sermon points and well-meaning cliches. But in the less trusting places of our brains, we tilt our gaze and scratch our heads. God, this really doesn't add up. How do I see all this senseless suffering and still sing about you being a good, good father? It adds so much fuel to the fire of skeptics and quite honestly makes me cry. I don't want to question you, but it's hard when I'm so utterly disappointed. It feels like you're not showing up here. After five of the longest and most excruciating days of my life, a new doctor came to my hospital room dressed in scrubs and prepped for surgery. He'd run one last test. The surgeon explained that he needed to rush me into emergency surgery and he'd be removing most of my colon. He was hoping to save enough of that my body would eventually be able to function properly, but he wasn't sure. He wasn't sure I'd even make it through the surgery. Weeks later, while I was home recovering, the surgeon called me. He'd gotten the report back from the mass that was removed and there was no further treatment needed. However, there was an alarming part of the report he couldn't reconcile, even with his years of practicing medicine. He said, how you survived this, I can't explain. I hung up the phone, stunned, and I suddenly thought of those days before the surgery when I begged God to take away the pain. I had questioned God because of the pain. I had wondered how God could let me be in so much pain, and I had cried because I thought God somehow didn't care about my pain. But in the end, it was the pain that God used to save my life. The pain was what kept me in the hospital. The pain was what kept me demanding the doctors run more tests. The pain was what forced me to address what desperately needed to be attended to within my body. The pain was what made me allow a surgeon to cut my belly wide open. The pain was what helped save me. Had God taken away the pain, I would have gone home. My colon would have ruptured. My body would have turned septic and I would have died. I now have a completely different picture of God standing beside my hospital bed while I was hurting and begging him to help me. He wasn't ignoring me. No, I believe it took every bit of holy restraint within him to not step in and remove the pain. He loved me too much to do the very thing I was begging him to do. He knew things I didn't know. He saw a bigger picture I couldn't see. His mercy was too great. His love was too deep. Indeed, he is a good, good father. My colon had been in trouble for a while. My stomach had been hurting for a while. But the pain hadn't been severe enough to force me to address what was happening below the surface. This isn't just true of physical pain, it's true of emotional pain as well. Once the truth surfaced, the pain was so intense, I couldn't ignore it any longer. I had to do something about it. I needed God's help, and God longs to help us. Stop right here and personalize that statement. Say it out loud. God longs to help me. Now keep this statement in the context of how God longs to help us. There are many things God longs to help us with, but at the core of it all, He longs to help us through the process of being made into the image of Christ. He is our ultimate example of wrestling well between divine faith and human feelings. So the more we become like Him, the more we learn to trust God, no matter what our human eyes can see. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the One who could save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. Please don't rush past this heart-stopping truth. Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. He was fully God, but also fully human. His divinity was complete, but his humanity grew and matured and learned how to be obedient. It would take a lot of obedience to do life with humans who were so fickle, forgetful, disrespectful, untrusting, and unbending with their pride. It would take a lot of obedience to love people who spit on him, mocked him, and wronged him in every way. It would take a lot of obedience to go to the cross for these people, for all people, for you and me. His humanity suffered, really suffered. Hear the raw angst in this reality. He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. His humanity said, please not this. His humanity cried for something different. His humanity begged for another way. But this obedience he learned from suffering compelled him to trust God beyond what his physical eyes could see. Oh dear God, help me trust you beyond what my physical eyes can see. As the winds of all that's uncontrollable whip around me and thrash against me, I need something to ground me, steady me, hold me together when circumstances are falling apart. I want to trust you beyond what my eyes can see. Can you imagine how much less anxiety, fear, angst, and heartbreak we would have if we could just truly trust God? I don't mean just saying we trust God because it's a Christian thing to say. I don't mean just singing words of trusting God because it's in the praise song. I mean having a marked moment. A real live moment we can point to and remind ourselves that we declared we will trust God with this suffering, with this disappointment, with this situation. Jesus had many marked moments. We often read how Jesus would go away to pray and be with his Heavenly Father. He would face something and need a marked moment with his Father to trade his human desire for God's will. We read about one of the most memorable of these marked moments in Mark chapter 14 when he asked God, take this cup from me. His humanity wanted a different plan, but he marked his request with the ultimate statement of trusting God. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Mark chapter 14, verse 36. When Jesus taught us to pray, he modeled again marked moments of trust on a daily basis. Then this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. This is obedience. This is trust. Obedience is a daily practice of trusting God. So, the only way to gain the kind of trust in God we must have to survive and thrive in this life is through the things that we suffer. Suffering, the very thing that makes us wonder if God is cruel. The very thing that makes us question God's goodness. The very thing I couldn't understand in that hospital bed. The very thing I don't want to be part of God's plan ever, ever, ever. Not for me, not for you, not for any human. But here's the craziest thing of all. God doesn't want you or me to suffer, but he will allow it in doses to increase our trust. Our pain and suffering isn't to hurt us, it's to save us. To save us from a life where we are self-reliant, self-satisfied, self-absorbed, and set up for the greatest pain of all, separation from God. Think about why we will yank a child back from running across the street. The initial jerk may cause the child some pain and confusion, but that tiny bit of suffering is for the greater good of saving the child from the worst suffering of getting hit by a car. To trust God is to trust His timing. To trust God is to trust His way. God loves me too much to answer my prayers at any other time than the right time and in any other way than the right way. In the stillness of all that doesn't feel right, this truth does. So I say it again, and my suffering today isn't so intense. This truth calms me. God loves me too much to answer my prayers at any other time than the right time, and in any other way than the right way. This doesn't change the fact that I want all of this to go away. I want happy. I want normal. I want easy. That's what I want, because that's all I can conceive of as a good plan. However, God sees things I can't see. And he knows things I don't know. Only God knows what the good plan is and what it will take to get me there. And most of all, he knows if I saw the full road ahead, I would stop about halfway through and never choose to continue with his plan. I would think the cost is too high, the path too scary, the way too daunting and the enemy too frightening. No human is strong enough to withstand seeing too much of God's plan in advance. It must be revealed daily and we must be led to it and through it slowly. Jesus is the perfect one to show us the way, the truth, and the life. The one who understands how hard the 86,400 seconds of one day can be. God doesn't just stand back while we are suffering and say, Good luck. I hate that you're in pain, but welcome to the reality of living in a sin-soaked world. Hang on. Deal with it. Eventually, I'll do something good with it. No. God sent his son Jesus to be his help with skin on. Jesus came to share in our humanity, to feel what we feel, to hurt like we hurt to suffer like we suffer, to be tempted like we are tempted, to defeat what we fear, to set us free from the curse of sin and death, and to lead us through this life. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 15-17 through 17 and 17-18 through 18 say, Since the children of flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For this reason... He had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. To fix our thoughts on Jesus is to close our eyes, to mark this moment by declaring our trust in God, to declare to God out loud like Jesus did, not my will, but yours be done. To stop fixating on the circumstances raging around us. To stop trying to make sense of things that make no sense in the middle of the journey. And to stop asking for the knowledge that's too heavy for us to carry. That's why God didn't want Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge it would give them was a burden God never wanted them to carry. And maybe that's why we don't have all the answers about our situations. God isn't trying to be distant or mysterious or hard to understand. He's being merciful. We don't have to know the plan to trust there is a plan. We don't have to feel good to trust there is good coming. We don't have to see evidence of changes to trust that it won't always be this hard. We just have to close our physical eyes and turn our thoughts to Jesus, fix our thoughts on him. Say his name over and over and over. God doesn't want to be explained away. He wants to be invited in. And right now he's looking for someone, anyone who will really call on him. In the midst of this cruel, crazy world, there you'll be, the one who, out of all this world, is brave enough to trust and call on the name of Jesus. You'll learn disappointments aren't a reason to run away. They are a reason to turn a different way, a way few ever find. Turn from the deep desire to know all the answers, to see much of the plan, to carry the weight you weren't ever supposed to carry. Make a different choice than Eve did. She demanded all the knowledge right away in her own way while ignoring God's way, If only she would have noticed that other tree, the tree of life, the tree of God's best way and perfect provision. It was there for her. She had a choice. And so do we. Scripture reminds us that hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is the tree of life. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12. Wow. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil may not be in our physical sight today, but Satan is certainly making use of that same sense of disappointment of our hope deferred. He wants us to be so consumed with our unmet expectations that our hearts just get sicker and sicker. He wants our inner selves to get more and more disillusioned with our circumstances, other people, and God. He wants our pain to get more and more intense to the point we lose sight of Jesus completely, and death seems appealing. All the while Jesus is saying, "'Don't deny my wounds, the healing I died to give you.'" Eve turned to the wrong tree and received death. I hung on a tree to bring you life. I am the fulfillment of your longing. I am your tree of life. Charles Spurgeon once preached, My dear friends, you will never see the tree of life aright unless you first look at the cross. Thus, then, Jesus Christ hanging on the cross is the tree of life in its winter time, In the darkest hour this world has ever known, Jesus died on a cross, on a tree, as Galatians chapter 3.13 puts it in the New Living Translation. But just as we know that trees in the wintertime only appear to be dead, so there was a redemptive transformation at work as Jesus hung on the cross. Your life may be dark today, but make no mistake, there is a powerful work happening. Jesus is in the process of turning your hurt into wisdom, and this wisdom will be life. Jesus is saying to us, nothing you desire compares to this wisdom. I will turn your pain to peace. I will turn your heartbreak into honor, and it will be worth it. I don't need answers. I need Jesus. I need his wisdom to be the loudest voice in my life right now. I need his truth washing over my wounds right now. I must stop the madness of my own assessments and assumptions. My soul was made for assurance, and that, my friend, is exactly what God gives us, even when we don't understand, even when things don't make sense, and especially when we are disappointed. And please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying any of this is easy or tidy. Pain still hurts. There are other people who have had the same medical emergency I had, only they didn't survive. Then there are all the other horrors and heartbreaks and inhumane conditions happening this very second all over the world. Unexplainable, unfathomable, and unspeakable pain. Some things won't be fixed on this side of eternity. They just have to be walked through. But when my brain begs me to doubt God, and it most certainly does, I find relief for my unbelief, By laying down my human assessments and assumptions, I turn from the tree of the knowledge and fix my gaze on the tree of life. I let my soul be cradled by God's divine assurance, his son, who completely understands, and who will walk with me every step of this if I keep my focus on him. That's how I survived the 86,400 seconds called today. Okay, friends, I am fully aware that I just read a good chunk from this chapter from Lisa's book, But I truly believe her words provide us with a very valuable framework for how to view our pain, our struggles, our confusion, our heartbreak, all of it really, in relation to the God who sees us and is always near no matter how we feel. I remember the first time I read this book, and even in reading it again to prep for this episode, that I found myself mentally agreeing with a yes over and over and over again. Have you ever been where Lisa was mentally with her struggles in life, my friends? Sure, we all have, right? I truly believe our time today listening in to how she has reframed her pain in relation to our good, good father in heaven is crucial to our peace and healing, even in the midst of the chaos of life. However, with all that said, I don't know about you, but right about now, I am still in desperate need of a peek at the end of Job's story here in an effort to not just stop reading and close this book for good. Like me, have you ever been guilty of that too, of reading a book that was getting so intense you just have to look ahead to see how it turned out in an effort to ease your mind about what was happening in the moment? I am most certainly guilty as charged of doing that and am most definitely going to do so right here in the book of Job as well. Because for real, my friends, just how much can a person take? And from his friends even. So spoiler alert here. In my research, I came across these valuable thoughts in the It's Not Supposed to Be This Way study guide about the ending of this book. Job eventually demands that God show up and go on trial for allowing the righteous to suffer. And to Job's astonishment, God does speak to Job out of a whirlwind. But instead of God being on trial, it is Job who has to answer God's questions. God shows him that he doesn't have anything close to the power or wisdom needed to run the universe, so he would never understand the complexity of why God often allows the wicked to prosper and the righteous to suffer. Even in the midst of all this hardship, God invites honest conversation with Job. And in the end, it deepened Job's relationship with God immensely. God never explains to Job why he allowed him to suffer. He doesn't tell him about Satan's accusation. He doesn't tell him that he's used the situation to put a stop forever to the belief that all suffering is a result of actions by the one suffering. He doesn't point out that he has been refining Job. He doesn't tell him that millions of people are going to read about his story in a book and come to know God better by it. He may have other reasons, but we don't know what they are. Ultimately, what helps Job is a right understanding of who God is. God remains good even when he allows the hardships to happen. But don't miss this crucial detail. God doesn't just leave us to suffer alone. God isn't just standing back to watch us suffer. Through his son Jesus, he willingly entered our world and experienced its miseries alongside us. And he wants to enter into our here and now sufferings and bear them alongside us as well. Okay, in an effort to move from our sneak peek at the end of the book of Job to actually get us back to taking a closer look at what Eliphaz is saying to Job in chapter 15, the Message Devotional Bible has this perspective. The second speech by Eliphaz rebuked Job. This speech was even more inflammatory than his first one and even more accusatory. What can those of us who know the end of the story learn from Eliphaz? That words spoken authoritatively about God aren't necessarily authoritatively true. And neither are accusations against others, regardless of how authoritatively they're voiced. We aren't judged by the bluster of our prosecutors, and we aren't judged by a jury of our peers. We are judged by God. Only He is wise enough to sift through the evidence and render a verdict. Moving on in our study today, Let's listen in as Job responds to Eliphaz in chapter 16. Then Job defended himself. I've had all I can take of your talk. What a bunch of miserable comforters. Is there no end to your windbag speeches? What's your problem that you go on and on like this? If you were in my shoes, I could talk just like you. I could put together a terrific tirade and really let you have it. But I'd never do that. I console and comfort, make things better, not worse. When I speak up, I feel no better. If I say nothing, that doesn't help either. I feel worn down. God, you have wasted me totally, me and my family. You've shriveled me like a dried prune, showing the world that you're against me. My gaunt face stares back at me from the mirror, a mute witness to your treatment of me. Your anger tears at me, your teeth rip me to shreds. Your eyes burn holes in me, God, my enemy. People take one look at me and gasp. To contemptuous, they slap me around and gang up against me. "'and God just stands there and lets them do it, "'lets wicked people do what they want to me. "'I was contentedly minding my business "'when God beat me up. "'He grabbed me by the neck and threw me to the ground. "'He set me up as his target, "'then rounded up archers to shoot at me. "'Merciless, they shot me full of arrows. "'Bitter bile poured from my gut to the ground. "'He burst in on me, onslaught after onslaught, "'charging me like a mad bull. "'I sewed myself a shroud and wore it like a shirt. "'I lay face down in the dirt.' Now my face is blotched red from weeping. Look at the dark shadows under my eyes, even though I've never heard a soul and my prayers are sincere. O oh, earth, don't cover up the wrong done to me. Don't muffle my cry. There must be someone in heaven who knows the truth about me in highest heaven, some attorney who can clear my name, my champion, my friend, while I'm weeping my eyes out before God. I appeal to the one who represents mortals before God as a neighbor stands up for a neighbor, Only a few years are left before I set out on the road of no return. Oh my, here we see Job's friends, the ones who were supposed to be comforting him in his grief, were instead condemning him for causing his own suffering. Job began his reply to Eliphaz by calling him and his friends miserable comforters. First five suffering and sovereignty offers us this advice here. Job's words reveal several ways to become better comforters to those in pain. Don't talk just for the sake of talking. Don't sermonize by giving pat answers. Don't accuse or criticize. Put yourself in the other person's place. Offer help and encouragement. Try Job's suggestions knowing that they are given by a person who needed great comfort. The best comforters are those who know something impersonal about suffering. In verses 6-14 through from the Jesus Bible provides us with this perspective. When put into difficult situations, even committed believers understandably question God's actions. Job was no exception. Though he was certain he was guilty of no wrongdoing, he still wondered if God was angry at him or seeking some kind of vengeance. Often, as in the case of Job, external circumstances fail as reliable indicators of God's attitude toward us. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This verse states plainly that Christ's death ultimately proved God's love. Believers do not have to depend on comfortable circumstances as a barometer indicating right standing with the Lord. All that was necessary to demonstrate God's unwavering love has already been done. While questions about the purpose for adversity and pain persist, the New Testament points to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the ultimate, objective, steadfast, and concrete proof of the love of God. In the New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible, for chapter 16, verse 19, it reads, Job was afraid that God had abandoned him, yet he appealed directly to God, his witness and advocate, and to God's knowledge of his innocence. A witness is someone who has seen what happened, and an advocate is like a lawyer who speaks on behalf of the plaintiff. By using these terms, Job showed he had cast all his hope for any fair defense upon God in heaven, because he would probably die before it happened on earth. In the New Testament, we learn that Jesus intercedes on our behalf, therefore there is nothing to fear. I don't know about you, but I just love how many correlations we are seeing to Jesus in our study time in Job. No matter where you are in the Bible, even here in the Old Testament, I want to remind you of something super important that I have mentioned several times before. Always be looking for Jesus. In John 5, Jesus says the Old Testament is all about him. He doesn't just show up in a manger in Matthew. He's been here since Genesis chapter 1, even. So keep looking for him. I sure will be too, my friends. So as we move on in our reading of chapter 17, we hear Job open here by saying, My spirit is broken. I just feel for him. I've been there. There have been times in my life when Job and Lamentations were the only books of scripture I wanted to read. I felt known by Job in those moments. The heartbreak, the exhaustion, the agony, the weariness, the frustration. All of it. Well, why don't you just listen in for yourselves? Job chapter 17 reads, My spirit is broken, my days used up, my grave dug and waiting. See how these mockers close in on me? How long do I have to put up with their insolence? Oh God, pledge your support for me. Give it to me in writing with your signature. You're the only one who can do it. These people are so useless. You know firsthand how stupid they can be. You wouldn't let them have the last word, would you? Those who betray their friends leave a legacy of abuse to their children. God, you've made me the talk of the town. People spit in my face. I can hardly see from crying so much. I'm nothing but skin and bones. Decent people can't believe what they're seeing. The good-hearted wake up and insist I've given up on God. But principled people hold tight, keeping a firm grip on life, sure that their clean, pure hands will get stronger and stronger. Maybe you'd all like to start over, to try again, the bunch of you. So far, I haven't come across one scrap of wisdom in anything you've said. My life's about over, all my plans are shattered, all my hopes are snuffed out. My hope that night would turn into day, my hope that dawn was about to break. If all I have to look forward to is a home in the graveyard, if my only hope for comfort is a well-built coffin, if a family reunion means going six feet under, and the only family that shows up is worms, do you call that hope? Who on earth could find any hope in that? No. If Hope and I are to be buried together— I suppose you'll all come to that double funeral. Let's take a pause, my friends, to consider this. When was the last time someone gave you advice without one scrap of wisdom, as Job said in verse 10? What do you do to stay connected to God when you're disappointed by God's people? The NLT Life Application Study Bible has this to say about verse 10. Job's three friends had a reputation for being wise, but Job could not find any wisdom in them. We will see God back up Job's claim in chapter 42, verse 7, when he condemned these men for their false portrayal of him. Obviously, these men had a faulty view of wisdom. They assumed that because they were prosperous and successful, God must be pleased with the way they were living and thinking. Job, however, told his friends that they were starting with the wrong idea because earthly success and prosperity are not a reward for faith in God. Likewise, trouble and affliction do not prove faithlessness. The truly wise man knows that wisdom comes from God alone, not from human successes and failures. And the truly wise man never forsakes God. God's wisdom proves superior to Job and to all his friends. Oh my. Can I just say one more time here that as I read these verses from Job chapter 17, my heart aches for Job. I wish I could step back in time for a day or two, just to sit with Job, tend his wounds, fix him some home-cooked meals, and tell him about Jesus. Actually, speak any words of encouragement at all in an attempt to offset, even just a bit, the accusations, harsh words, criticisms, attacks, really, he is enduring from his friends. The Suffering and Sovereignty Study says this, Job's words are filled with hopelessness. The pain seems to pierce straight through his brittle, sore-skinned surface and go straight to his anguished soul and shattered spirit. As Job looked to the future, he couldn't see any restored days up ahead, only visions of the grave that marked the end of his life. His words are haunting. My spirit is broken. My days are cut short. The grave awaits me. If the only home I hope for is the grave, if I spread out my bed in the realm of darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother, or my sister, where then is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? We can't imagine the magnitude of brokenness Job was experiencing, nor do we ever want to. It must have been suffocating to wake up every morning and face the depth and width of his despair and physical pain, seeing no tangible signs of life getting better. No word from God. Hope had faded into hopelessness as days slowly turned into weeks and maybe even months. Hopelessness, it's one of Satan's most destructive tools in his bag of tricks. He uses it to try and slowly strip away the best parts of us, just like he did to Job convincing him that life from that point on was nothing more than a downward spiral which ended in darkness. We do notice that Job, even on the dark day of hopelessness, still cried out to God, asking for assurance and a pledge of security. It's as if a tiny shoot of hope pushed its way through the cracks of the concrete of hopelessness, and Job once again believed that God was good and would come through for him. Job was real and raw with his emotional words. He held nothing back, allowing the floodgates of his darkest thoughts to spill out of his mouth like a river before his maker. And God let Job speak. He didn't silence, shame, or correct him. God let Job express what was on his heart. And although God chose to remain silent, his mercy, love, and compassion were powerfully active. Just like Job, we too can cry out to God in our time of need. On those days when we feel hopeless, he is our source of strength and security. God wants us to be real and honest with Him, even with our rawest emotions. But we must remember to always remain reverent and honorable to Him in the process. He will not forsake us or shame us. He will comfort and shower us with His compassion. Job may not have had access to God's written word, but we do. God's promises of hope and assurance are always available to us, even in the seasons of life when our hope is strained by our sufferings and hopelessness is knocking at the door of our heart. Because of Jesus, we can always approach God's throne of grace with a confident hope, knowing that we will receive his mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus is our living hope, and in him we have the joy of eternal security and salvation. And here we are back to Jesus. It's always only Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And now listen to this perspective from She Reads Truth: Suffering in the God Who Speaks study. How many times has some very well-meaning person tried to comfort your heartache with words saying something along the lines of this, God will comfort you and see you through this, he always does. Or this, just hang in there, evil people always get what they deserve. Look closely and you'll see those two sentiments are basically parts of Eliphaz's second conversation with Job. So why are they a problem? Well, for one thing, the latter suggests that Job must be evil too. Why else would he be suffering badly? Their conversation leads to the question, how do we truly weep with, mourn with, and comfort those who are broken? How do we become true comforters? First, we need to read and truly absorb Job's scorching honesty in chapters 16 and 17, where the stakes are even higher. Just a reminder, God refused to allow Satan to take Job's life, which meant Job's torment was as bad as it could possibly get with no relief anywhere, falling just short of death, and Job couldn't exactly turn to morphine to numb the pain. So now the question becomes one of self-reflection. If we are the ones in the fiery furnace, how do we cling to our relationship with God when it feels as if all is going up in smoke? These two questions are tied together because those who weep and mourn most effectively will have climbed into that fiery furnace of suffering in some way. In doing so, they join the jobs of the world. So for both situations, we wonder, what does true faithfulness look like, both for the one who comforts and the one who suffers? What part does prayer play in our suffering? What does it mean to bring all our emotions, even our anger, doubt, and feelings of betrayal before God? After all, Job's protests were laced with accusations. If his suffering teaches us anything, it is to strip away all pretences, physical and spiritual. Job said that God had worn out and torn him up, seized him by the neck, and dashed him to pieces to the point that Job's face was red from weeping. His dark anger boiled over in agonizing questions as he protested the stony silence of God. Still, more than anything else, Job longed for his shattered relationship with God to be mended. He'd already sought out a mediator to bring them together. He also repeatedly begged to talk with God, which we will eventually read that he ultimately did in the most extraordinary of circumstances. Most importantly, Job returned to this understanding. His advocate and witness were set apart on high. Job remembered who he was and who he was not. He was not God. All of this points to Job's faithfulness in his very real relationship with God. So how do we sit with someone in the despair? How do we pray in the midst of others' suffering as well as our own? In my own experience, words like, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, bring me back to the truth of God's character, of both his unfailing loving kindness and ultimate sovereignty through Jesus Christ. Our Savior reaches through our blinding pain to comfort and deliver us, Our prayer for mercy, offered with humility and hope, binds us together before the God who comforts even from on high. Let's close our time together by taking a closer look at God's truth about suffering. May these truths serve as a trigger to redirect your heart and move you from chaos into peace, and darkness into light, and hopelessness into hope. As a matter of fact, let's consider each of these truths as our prayer to God in closing out this episode. Please join me as we preach to our hearts what we know but truthfully often struggle to feel in moments of heartache and struggle. Number one, God is not the author of evil and suffering. The last day of creation, God spoke these words in Genesis. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. God's design was perfect. Sin broke God's original design. It opened the door for grief, pain, and suffering. Number two, though suffering is not good, God will use it for his good. We find one of God's promises regarding suffering in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. He promises to work all things, yes, even the hard things, for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. When life feels at its darkest, remember how God turned Jesus' deepest, darkest hours of pain and suffering into the most beautiful, glorious gift imaginable. Number three, one day suffering will end and God will exact justice for every evil done. Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 promises God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Romans 12 19 says don't take revenge my dear friends but leave room for God's wrath for it is written it is mine to avenge. I will repay says the Lord. Number four no matter how deep our suffering is God's love is deeper still. Jesus came to our world, put on flesh, and personally experienced the deepest rejection, pain, and suffering. Through His Holy Spirit, God not only meets us in our trials, He remains. He comforts, He heals, and He restores. Number five, God empowers us to use the comfort we've received from Him to comfort others. God never wastes our pain. In 2 Corinthians, Paul praises the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. God has given each of us a story. Allow the comfort God has given you to pour over into the life of another. You will be doubly blessed, my friend, doubly blessed. Father God, we ask you to impress each of these truths about you in our hearts and minds. You are so very good. You can be trusted. Help us mark the hard moments of this day with declarations of our trust in you. There is more to what we're facing today than what our physical eyes can see. When our pain feels too deep and when we don't think we can take one more second of suffering, help us recognize your plan and protection. Help us trade our unbelief for the beautiful relief that we don't have to figure this out. We just have to fix our thoughts on Jesus and how he will lead us. We mark this moment right here, right now, as a moment of trust. We declare we don't have to understand. We just have to trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so can I just be brutally honest here for a moment, friends? Reviews matter. They create interest and give credibility so new listeners don't have to take my word about how much I love hosting the podcast, but instead have other listeners that they already know, love, and trust vouching for Open Our Bibles together. For this and about a million other reasons, I won't stop beating this drum from episode to episode because you taking five minutes a day to drop some stars and a quick review will make so much more impact than you may ever know. And for that, I thank you, friends. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.